extend a welcome to each of you here to our service this morning, a special welcome to the team that was in the Dominican Republic for the last week. Glad to have you back, enjoyed the updates we received throughout the week, and it sounds like you had an interesting group there, or an interesting time there. Also recognize there are some people here today because of a wedding, actually there were a couple weddings here in the area yesterday, and to the visitors, a special welcome, we're glad for each of you that are here. So obviously we've had varied experiences during the last week and uh, we're united here together from, from different areas, different, um, different experiences and so forth, but my desire is that our time together this morning would increase our commitment to God and would challenge us to a, uh, a deeper commitment to Him. I'm going to start this morning by asking you a question. I'd like a response from a couple people. I'm going to name a category of people from the Bible, and I want you to, to note the first name or the first person that comes to your mind. Not necessarily your favorite, not necessarily the most popular or the best known or the most honorable, but the first person that comes to your mind when I say this category. So the category is Old Testament prophets. Now, who was the first Old Testament prophet that came to your mind? I'd like to hear a couple of responses. Isaiah? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not sure I caught all of those. I caught a number of those. Appreciate your response there. The text that we looked at this morning from Psalm 37 describes the setting in which many of the Old Testament prophets lived. There was much wickedness. There was an environment of evil in this psalm. It says, fret not thyself because of evildoers. And a lot of the prophets found themselves living in a setting of evil. But this psalm goes on not only to describe the setting, but it also prescribes an appropriate response. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight in the Lord. Verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. And verse 9, wait upon the Lord. And I think we see that also exemplified in, uh, in many of the prophets as they delighted in the Lord and as they committed themselves to the Lord. And this morning we want to talk especially about that aspect of commitment. So this morning, we will look at the life of a prophet, one of the prophets, somewhat as a character study of his life. And I'm not surprised that he was not the first one mentioned this morning. In fact, I'm not sure if I heard his name mentioned at all. Sometimes I think this prophet may be a little bit overlooked, although he is fairly well known he certainly deserves our attention. And I'm talking not about the prophet Elijah, but the prophet Elisha. Now, Elisha lived under the shadow of the prophet of fire, Elijah. Perhaps that is one reason why we don't hear more about him. But Elisha did have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So if he had a, a double portion of Elijah's spirit, does that mean he was twice as effective? Well, 
I don't know that we have an answer for that question, but I think it's possible that he had a greater influence on more people than what Elijah had. Elijah was caught up in some very, um, very prominent situations and, and events. So what I'd like to look at this morning is the life of Elisha as a man of commitment, as the title of the message, Elisha, a man of commitment. And we, we want to look at four aspects of Elisha's life. We want to look at his call to, a commit, to, his call to commitment, and then secondly, his commitment to the call. Thirdly, his commitment tested and proven, and last of all, his commitment demonstrated. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, we'll be referring to this passage and then later on to um, some passages from 2 Kings. Beginning with 1 Kings 19, as we look at Elisha's call to commitment. Kind of a unique setting here. And just to give you a little bit of background, what led up to this setting? Uh, this was during the time of the ministry of the prophet Elijah. And just prior to this, Elijah had his famous showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Obviously a very emotional experience, a very um, demanding experience, a time that uh, definitely took a lot of um, emotional and spiritual energy. And after this climax, as it were, Elijah found himself discouraged and exhausted. So from Mount Carmel, he fled to the wilderness near Beersheba. And as he was out there in the wilderness, all alone, he even left his servant behind, his prayer to God was, I'm done. I'm finished. I want to die. I've done everything I can do. I've given all the energy I can give. I don't have anything left. Just take my life. I'm ready for it to be over. Well, God did not choose to take Elijah's life at that point. Instead, he said, I still have a message for you. I have a place for you to go. I want you to go to Mount Horeb. And apparently this was a 40 days journey away. Mount Horeb, which is also known as the Mount of God. And it was on Mount Horeb that Elijah heard the voice of God. So there on Mount Horeb, as Elijah was alone with God, you remember there was this earthquake, there was this fire, there was this mighty wind. But God was not in any of those. But then there was a still small voice. How many of you know what that still small voice said to Elijah? You know, we hear a lot about the still small voice. Do any of you know what God spoke to Elijah? Basically what God said is, you need some help. And he told them, told them that you need to anoint a new prophet to take your place. Go anoint prophet Elisha. So it's interesting that in Elijah's time of discouragement and depression, God told him, go find some support. Go find someone who can work with you and eventually become prophet in your place. So from Mount Horeb, it appears like Elijah went directly to the fields 
where he found Elisha plowing in the fields. And that's where the account begins here. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. So he departed thence. This is talking about Elijah. He left the mountain, Mount Horeb. He departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. This was Elisha's call. Kind of an interesting call. This man appeared out of nowhere, took one of his articles of clothing, threw it on Elisha, and went on his way. It doesn't even appear like there were any words exchanged. So what can we learn from this call? I think there's three things we can learn about his call. First of all, Elisha's call required denial, or we could say it required sacrifice. Elisha was not a lazy man. He was not an idle person. We've often heard that God calls busy people, and I think it's obvious that Elisha was a busy person. He was busy plowing in the field. It looked like a pretty big-time operation, 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th yoke. Now, keep in mind, just immediately prior to this time, Israel had gone through three years and six months without rain. There was a famine, there was no rain, and now at this moment they were out there. Well, there had been a a tremendous rainstorm then. After Mount Carmel, there was a tremendous rainstorm, and apparently there was some optimism that there was now going to be a growing season, and he was out there plowing. Whose field was he plowing? Oh, it'd be interesting to know that. We don't know for sure. It could be, possibly, that Elisha was just simply a servant of a wealthy man who had lots of servants and lots of oxen, and he was one of those servants. Uh, To me, that seems somewhat doubtful. Uh, Later on in the account, Elisha sacrificed his oxen and uh, the instruments. I I doubt that he would have taken his master's oxen and, and killed them before he left. Doesn't seem that would be leaving on very good terms. So it doesn't seem to me that he was merely a servant. Uh, perhaps there were, this was a joint effort in the community where there were various farmers who each had their own yoke of oxen. And he said, let's all get together and we'll plow your field today and your field tomorrow and my field the next day, kind of like the old threshing teams that went around from farm to farm. Well, that's a possibility. Again, we don't know for sure. I think there's also the possibility that Elisha's father, Shaphat, was a wealthy man, a big-time farmer. And it could be that when the rains came, this great rain, he said, okay, boys, time to get to work. I think we're going to have a harvest. Let's plant. Get those fields plowed so we can plant. And maybe Elisha was the foreman of the crew. There may have been some hired servants, and he was a foreman, bringing up the rear, as it were, so he could keep his eyes on what was happening ahead of him. So we don't know exactly who the fields and the oxen belonged to, but in any case, I think there was a degree of wealth indicated here in this passage. In these days, for a family to own a donkey was probably considered a blessing. To own a pair of oxen was probably considered a luxury. And in this case, 
There were 24 oxen in one place after three and a half years of famine. Why weren't those oxen eaten if people were hungry? I think there was some, some wealth there. I think there was uh, some means. And it appears to me that Elisha was in a pretty good position with a promising future. Whether he owned some of these oxen, I don't know. Whether his father owned them, I don't know. But it's possible that he was in a position to someday own it all if he didn't own it already. And his call was to leave all of this behind. This promising future that he had, the wealth that was before him. So the call required denial. This was a call from a peaceful life to one of difficulty and danger and disrespect. He was in a respected position. He was called to a life of, of disrespect. He was called from a secure future to one of possible poverty. He was called from a life of close interaction with his family, working with his father and his parents and perhaps uh, a larger family. He had to leave that to life of separation and loneliness. It was a call to denial. And I think of a statement I've heard many times or read many times in the newsletters from, uh, from Igo, serving in Thailand, where they made the statement, we don't go because it is safe. And as I recall, I think it said, we go because we have been called. We go because there's a need. Not because it's safe, not because it's promising, but there's a call and there's a need. So this was nothing less than a call to sacrifice and denial. This call also required devotion. It required loyalty. It simply says that Elijah cast his mantle upon Elisha. Now the mantle was an article of clothing, an outer garment. Perhaps it was somewhat like a poncho that could be thrown over the shoulders or pulled over the head if the weather got bad. It was a personal possession and casting it upon another person indicated that that person was chosen as a personal assistant to the one who owned that garment. So this was a call to loyalty. It was a call to devotion. And it's possible that Elijah or even more of the prophets wore a particular mantle that identified them as a prophet. If so, Elisha may have recognized his calling as a call to being a prophet. He may have recognized Elijah. I don't know if he did or not. Elijah spent a lot of his time in hiding, so I'm not sure how, how recognizable he was. But at any rate, this was a call to devotion. It meant going where this person went. It meant walking where he walked. It meant doing what he expected you to do. And it meant eating or possibly not eating, what and when he ate or expected you to eat, sleeping where he slept. It meant worshiping where he worshiped and who he worshiped and how he worshiped. So this was a call of devotion to Elijah, but even more than that, it was a call of devotion to the God of Elijah. It meant going where God wanted him to go, doing what God wanted him to do. And this was a type of devotion that could potentially cost his life. I'm guessing that Elisha well knew 
that Elijah was a wanted man. The king had been searching all over the place for him. He wanted to get rid of him. And Elisha himself later on was to become a hunted man on more than one occasion where kings were looking for him, trying to get rid of him. And that's where devotion may take you. It may put your life in danger. It could cost your life. So this call was nothing less than a call to total and complete devotion. And thirdly, this call required a decision. I find it interesting. Elijah threw his mantle over Elisha and continued on. It says, and Elijah passed by. It doesn't say that he stopped to observe this big farming operation and admire all the oxen and the amount of work that was getting done. He did not stop to visit for a while. He did not linger to give a lot of details about the call or to answer questions. In fact, Elisha had one question and he had to run after Elijah to even ask that one question. Elijah just simply passed by and he went his way. He made his business known and continued on. So Elisha had a decision to make. He made that decision, in my opinion, pretty quickly. He did not hesitate. For Elisha to procrastinate, in essence, would have been to say no. The opportunity was there. He needed to decide. If he was going to respond, it had to be now. If he didn't respond now, the opportunity could have been lost forever. We are called to make a decision, to respond to God's call. The Bible says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, because to, de to delay is to disobey. Many times, the word maybe or the word later is just simply another word for no, I'm not willing. So this was a call to a decision. Elisha's call to commitment. Now let's move on and look at Elisha's commitment to his call. First of all, it was a call to commitment. Now I'd like to see his commitment to his call. Let's continue reading. Verse 20. Speaking of Elisha, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother. Kiss them goodbye, as it were. And then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. So there's three things here I see about Elisha's commitment to his call. First of all, his commitment was courteous, or it was respectful. And I'm thinking here about his relationship to his parents. You know, many, many times people that are in a, a mundane situation, a situation of work day after day, may be looking for a way to get out. Something exciting, something thrilling. I want to explore the world. I want to do something interesting. Instead of here walking behind 
these oxen hour after hour, day after day. This is boring. I want something different. Some people are looking for an escape. But in Elisha's case, I don't see this as a way out, as an escape route. And I don't see it as rebellion against his authority because he was showing respect to his authority. This was not a thrill-seeking adventure trip. He was simply reporting back to his authority, to his appearance. I don't know how old Elisha was at this time. I picture him as a young man, but also as a mature man, as a grown man. A man who could make decisions, who could show responsibility, and yet even so, he recognized the role that his parents played in his life. And I believe that commitment to the call of God can always be expressed respectfully. And if you're responding to something that cannot be, res cannot be expressed in a respectful way, it just could be that it's not from God. If it's from God, I'm not saying everyone will agree, but I think you can at least do it respectfully. So Elisha's commitment was courteous. Not only that, but it was complete. It was total. Note that Elisha did not ask a lot of questions. He did ask one question, or have one request, but he did not ask a lot of questions. He hardly even had a chance to, even if he wanted to, because Elijah passed by so quickly. He didn't ask, well, what if this, or what about that, or how long, or, or where, you know, how much? I'm sure there's all kinds of questions that went through his mind. I'm sure there were questions that would have gone through my mind. And if you would have been in that, in that situation, there are questions that would have gone through your mind. But Elisha's commitment was not conditional. It was not conditional on the answers to all these questions. It did not depend on answers. He was basically signing a blank contract. Elijah was saying, come, this is the call. And Elisha was responding. His commitment to the call was a commitment for whatever, wherever, whenever, however. That was total commitment. I find that challenging for my life. His commitment was total. He did not ask questions, nor did he reserve escape routes. He had this yoke of oxen that he had been working with. Seems to me it would have been kind of handy to just, you know, keep them in reserve. Just in case this doesn't work out, I can always come back and continue plowing. But no, he slew his oxen, boiled their flesh, he burned their equipment, perhaps the yoke, perhaps the plow, everything that was with him, he burned it. He burned his bridges behind him. There was no turning back. There was nothing that he was going to come back to. He was giving up his old ways. He was giving up anything that could be a hindrance or a distraction to his commitment. God called him. He was committed to the call, and there were no strings attached. There was nothing that was going to bring him back. He freed himself to serve without response. His commitment was complete. It was total. And thirdly, his commitment was communal. It was public. This was not just something private between him and God. 
this was not something, well, you know, I'm really not sure about this. I, I hope not too many people find out what I'm doing. They might think it's pretty radical. Or they might think I'm losing my marbles. I'm just going to kind of keep this to myself. But no, he made his commitment public. I think this was quite an event here. He not only had an ox roast, he roasted two oxen. That could feed a lot of people. It says he gave on to the people. I think this was kind of a public farewell, as it were, a public commitment, a public statement, a public declaration of his intentions. He left no doubt about what he was committed to do, and he didn't keep it a secret in case it didn't work out. And he was not ashamed of his commitment to God's call. How do you respond to God's call? Is it with a degree of embarrassment or shame? You just want to keep it a little bit hidden? You know, God, God is looking for people who are not ashamed of him, who are not ashamed to stand up and make their commitment to him public. He is looking for people that are not ashamed to be identified with him, who are not ashamed to follow him anywhere he may call. God is looking for people who are not ashamed to make some decisions that some people might think are just a little bit ridiculous. God is looking for people who are not ashamed to give up their financial security in order to follow where he calls. He's looking for people who are not ashamed to step into an unknown future. We like to have our answers. Sometimes God asks us to step into the unknown and not be ashamed to put our life into his hands. Elisha could make his commitment public and have this communal event because he was not ashamed to be identified with God's call in his life. And may we follow that example. Uh, maybe just uh, I'll go off on a little bit of a side note here. question that came to my mind as I was looking at this. In Matthew, in Jesus' teachings, he gave the um, account in Matthew chapter 8 of this disciple who said to him, when Jesus said, follow me, the disciple said, but Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, the connotation there is that that disciple's response was not the appropriate response. So how does that compare to Elisha's response, where he come back to Elijah and said, let me, let me go back to my parents? Well, I think there is a difference. In Elisha's response, we see, I don't see any indication here of a divided heart, where I want to I wanna just stay at home, the account Jesus mentioned, I want to bury my parents. In other words, I want to stay here as long as my parents are alive. I don't want to leave my parents. After my parents are gone, then I'll reconsider. That's not what I see from Elisha. He's saying, I'm going to tell them what I'm planning to do. I'm going to kiss them goodbye. I'm going to say farewell. And from Elijah, I don't see any word of reproof to this. In fact, his response here seems a little bit vague. When Elisha said, let me go back to my parents, Elijah said, go back again, for what have I done to thee? Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, I'm not sure exactly. Someone suggested that what Elijah, that we could paraphrase this to say, by all means, go back. If you realize 
what this call means that I gave, you need to go back and say farewell because you may not see your parents again. For what have I done to you? If you really understand what this means, yes, you need to say farewell. Let's move on to the third aspect, Elisha's commitment tested and proven. Now, now we talked about, we've been talking about Elisha's commitment. What exactly was that commitment? We looked at what it required. It required denial and devotion and decision. We looked at how he expressed it. He expressed it with courtesy to his parents. He expressed it completely, totally. He expressed it communally to the public. But what exactly was his commitment? I gave you a hint earlier when I told you that when someone threw his mantle over you, it was an indication that you were chosen to be a personal assistant to that person. You were chosen to be a servant. So Elisha was called into service. He was committed to his service to Elijah, but even more so to the God of Elijah. He became a committed servant. Notice the last sentence in this chapter. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him or served him. So the call of God upon his life was a call to service. And that's what Elisha's commitment was. It was a commitment to service. This commitment was tested in three ways. The first way it was tested, test number one, was the test of obscurity. Verse 21 in this chapter is the last we hear about Elisha in the book of 1 Kings. We have a number of chapters, yet in 1 Kings there were some significant events that took place. Quite a bit happened. Elijah was very involved in these events. And I think Elisha was shadowing Elijah all this time, but his name is not even mentioned a single time in the rest of the book. We can learn a lot from what is written in the Bible. And sometimes I think we can also learn from what is not written in the Bible. In this case, there's nothing written about Elisha for a number of chapters. And approximately 10 years passed during this time, and Elisha was nothing but an obscure servant, unheard of. Ten years of serving, training, learning, and testing. That is a test of commitment. A test of a commitment is if you are willing to serve in obscurity with absolutely no recognition. No one even recognizes what you're doing. No one even mentions what you're doing. Are you willing to serve in that condition? Without promotion, without recognition, no popularity, no praise, no praise of men, just continually serving in the position to which God has called you. That's what Elisha did. That was the test of his commitment. It's also a test that Jesus gives for us in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, to earn your reward of them. 
He says, don't pray on the street corners to be seen of men. Don't fast to be seen of men. He says, people that do this have their reward. It's just merely temporary recognition that disappears. But Jesus says, what you do, you do before God. And if men don't notice you, so what? It doesn't matter. Don't live for the praise and honor of men. Carry out your commitment before God. That is what matters. This is the test of obscurity. I think it was probably not an easy test, but it was a test that Elisha passed. So when do we hear about Elisha again? Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 2. And this is the next time that we hear about Elisha. And it's at the end of Elijah's life, when Elijah reaches the end of his ministry and journey. This is test number two, and it's the test that I'm calling the test of obedience. I'm going to read this account here. Uh, read... Uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass, when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha, it's the first time he's mentioned for quite a few chapters, from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee. For the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. Well, the account continues, and eventually the whirlwind of fire came, or the chariots of fire, and the whirlwind carried Elijah to heaven. This is what I'm calling the obedience test. And we recognize obedience as a good thing, as a necessary thing. And perhaps you're thinking, but Elisha did not obey. He did not do what Elijah was telling him to do. He failed the test. I don't think he did. I think Elijah was laying out the options before Elisha. Are you going to fall for the temptations of an easy life and going your own path and remaining behind? Or are you going to be faithful to your commitment to service to the very end? Now, this was a test. And the test of obedience was obedience to his commitment to serve Elijah. And Elijah was putting him to the test three times. 
He was testing Elisha's commitment. Was he dissatisfied with his position as a servant? Was he eager to be in charge of his own life, go his own way, do his own thing? Or was he a true servant, desiring only to be committed to his role to the very end? Elijah knew that Elisha would be his successor. God had told him that earlier. And I think Elijah knew that in order for Elisha to succeed, he needed a servant's heart and he needed to be true and obedient to his commitment. And he was obedient to his commitment. From Elisha's perspective, if he had followed Elijah for 10 years, I think he got to know him. I think he understood Elijah to a degree. And I think he was able to discern Elijah's motive for asking him to stay behind. And he was determined to pass the test. Elisha was committed to service. And he was obedient to the very end. Well, there was a third test, and it was a test of opportunity. As they went on, they crossed the Jordan in miraculous means. And it came to pass, verse 9, when they were going over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. That was an opportunity. Here comes Elijah, this prophet of God. What do you want? I'm soon going to disappear. I'm giving you one chance to ask for whatever you want before I'm going. What do you want? That's an opportunity. What's going through your mind? What would you have asked for if Elijah would have asked you, what do you want? Would he ask for wealth? Would he ask for pleasure? Would he ask for a life of ease? Would he ask for deliverance from all of his enemies? Like Elijah, I know, you know, people have been seeking your life. They might be seeking my life. I I ask for, for deliverance from my enemies. Elisha didn't ask for any of that. He did not ask for an easy life or an easy ministry or an easy role. He did not ask for something that was easy Rather, what he asked for was the spirit and power to be able to face whatever came his way. In essence, he was saying, I know my ministry, my commitment will not be easy. So what I need is a double portion of your spirit, which I think he recognized as God's spirit upon him. He was recognizing his dependence on the spirit of God. That's what I need to enable me. To fulfill my commitment. He knew he could not succeed without it. And he wanted whatever it took for him to be, for him to be able to continue to be faithful to his calling. That was the test of opportunity, the opportunity that was given to him. Well, I have a fourth aspect of Elisha's life, and that is Elisha's commitment demonstrated and recognized. And frankly, I can't go into a lot of detail on this point because this point lasts the rest of Elisha's life. The rest of his life was a demonstration of his commitment and it was a demonstration of the spiritual power 
that resulted from that commitment that was upon his life. And for the next seven chapters, we have story after story after story of events that took place in which this commitment on the part of Elisha was demonstrated through his faith. I believe there are more miracles associated with the life of Elisha than with any other Old Testament character except perhaps for the life of Moses. Miracle after miracle. Just a quick overview. Like I said, I can't go into detail. Right away, Elijah left. Elisha headed back to meet with the other prophets. He divided the waters of the Jordan. And he was recognized when he did this. The prophets saw it. They said, oh, the spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha. They recognized that he had that spiritual power. They recognized him as a spiritual man. Right after that, people complained there by Jericho. Look, our, our waters here, they're, they're just not fit to drink. The waters are, are not the ground barren. Elisha healed the waters. He brought uh, healing and life and blessing to others. Then there were children that came out and mocked him. And I think even more, they were not mocking him, but they were mocking his God and the God of Elijah. They probably heard about Elijah disappearing in this whirlwind, and they thought that sounded pretty exciting. They started mocking Elisha and his God. Elisha pronounced judgment on those children. He brought water into a valley in the time of war in chapter 3. In chapter 4, we have the account of the poor widow and her sons. She couldn't pay her debts and how her oil was multiplied and continued and she was able to pay her debts and live on the rest. Right after that, also in chapter 4, we have another uh, woman and her husband who were miraculously given the birth of a son. And later on, he died. The son was resurrected through Elisha's power. He removed poison from the pottage. He fed many people with a small portion of food. He healed Naaman's leprosy. He pronounced judgment on Gehazi for his covetousness and de deception. He made the axe head to float. He dealt with the Syrian army. There was a number of miracles that took place there. And they, all these miracles are a demonstration of God's work through Elisha. Why? Because of his commitment and his faithfulness to that commitment. They show his spiritual perception. He saw things from God's perspective. These things revealed Elisha's trust in God. And they were clear for the whole world to see. D.L. Moody was challenged by a statement that he heard someone make. Someone made the statement that the world has yet to see what God can do with one man who is fully and totally committed to him. What this man was saying, our, our commitment is it's so limited, but if we would just give ourselves totally to God, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man like that. D.L. Moody was challenged by that. He said, I, I purpose to be that person. Of course, he was human. He had his shortcomings, but I think that was Elisha's goal as well. 
I'm going to be totally committed to God, and I'm going to let the whole world see what happens from that. What does the world see when they look at you? Do they see the results of a man, of a woman, of a young person, of a youth, or a boy, or a girl who is totally committed to God? Paul told Timothy, meditate upon these things, the word of God, give thyself wholly to them, be fully committed to them, that thy profiting may appear to all, to everyone. When you give yourself wholly, you're committed, and when you're committed, the results will be obvious. As we conclude, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that my desire is that our time together here this morning will challenge us to a deeper commitment to God, will increase our commitment, our level of commitment, and not only challenge us, but it will carry us into that deeper commitment. We looked at Elisha's call. I believe every person here has the call of God upon his life. God's call is upon your life. That call may require denial. We're busy people. Are we willing to respond? Are we willing to give up? Are we available? It requires devotion. It requires a decision. And the time of decision is now. We looked at Elisha's commitment and how that his commitment showed courtesy and respect to his authority. His commitment was complete. He cut the strings. He burned the bridges behind him. What are you hanging on to just in case? Just in case your commitment to God doesn't work out the way you want it to. Are you willing to cut those ties, cut those strings? Are you willing to make your commitment public? Are you willing to stand up and declare, this is what God called me to do, and by God's grace, this is what I'm going to do? Boy, Elisha passed a test. He passed a test of obscurity, obedience, opportunity. If we're honest, we can probably admit that obscurity somewhat diminishes the appeal of our commitment. We like to be recognized. Are we committed even in obscurity? Will we obedient? Will we be obedient to our commitment to the very end? We looked at Elisha's life, the point that was too broad for us to cover in detail. As we look at your commitment, I think the same is true. That point is too broad to cover in detail. If you have the commitment of Elisha, the testimony of your life will go to the day of your death and beyond. It will continue for generations. May God help us today to be men and women who are committed, committed to follow his call without reserve to the very end. Our custom here is to kneel for prayer, and if you care to do so, you may join us as we kneel.